This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Steve's drinking his non-alcoholic beer off camera there. <laughs> so, Steve, it's been a while since we've been doing this. It's been a long while, in fact. What did you do? What did you do that caused us to not be able to do this? <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. What did you do? <laughs> yeah, so we had some backlog, but not enough. And I ended up traveling Brazil. And then I got stuck way late a fair bit in Canada because I got COVID <laughs> on the way back. And then New Year's and all the holidays. And basically, it was a lot of coordination nightmare that we didn't end up navigating successfully. And now it's Friday the 13th. We are really late on a lot of the stuff. No way. I didn't realize Friday the 13th. Okay. Yeah, so everything's going to go wrong today. And we're not going to have a recording, but we're going to yes, try. We're going to try. Try our best. So what are we talking about today? It's a concept that you kept bringing up. We kept kind of throwing it back and forth, I guess. I think we both were kind of looking forward to talking about it at times. And then both of us kind of fell out of it and kind of kept boomeranging like that. And now it's just a matter of we only have time to record right now. So we're going to talk about this. <laughs> so we're talking about quiet quitting. So let's assume that nobody knows anything about this. What is it, Steve? Well, it's not what it sounds like it is. You're not actually quitting your job. I don't have the formal definition in front of me, but in short, it's just doing your basic job description and not going above and beyond. It's pretty simple when you when you put it that way. Do you have a more formal definition? No, not really, because if you go to Wikipedia and you try to find this, you'll just find that it redirects to work to rule, which as a kid, whenever I heard work to rule, I always thought like rule as in like to govern, to lord right, over. Right, right. Not the rules as in like legislation. Like the rule of law. Yeah, 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 which is actually what it is. So it's similar to that. And I actually, among my very sparse notes for this particular one, because it's mostly going to be us talking about it. I have slow down versus work to rule versus quiet quitting. But to stick back to what you were just saying, quiet quitting, I guess, yeah, is just as some people call it. I don't like the really kind of, I don't know if it's kitschy, but kind of <laughs> grade school feeling rhyme of this, but acting your wage, if you heard this one as well. No, I've never heard that term. Yeah. Acting your wage instead of acting your age. So they're not paying you very much. Productivity has gone up crazy amounts of the past decades and wages have not. So acting your wage is another way of saying quiet quitting, aka doing the bare minimum on the job. Right. And, and I know people will think doing the bare minimum means you're slacking off. Or being lazy, yeah. But this is not that. It's actually just doing the basic job description, not putting in extra hours, taking on extra projects that are outside of your job description, trying to impress people to get promoted. You're just doing your job, showing up, going home, living your life, finding meaning and purpose in other things. Having a work-life balance, in other words. This makes me think of how there's some research that shows that I think particularly men, when they retire, they have a much higher rate of just dying within the next, I think, year or two. But to me, that doesn't seem like it'd be universal. It seems like maybe people who 
only find their purpose in life and their function in society through their job and nothing else. And I think in older generations, particularly for men, that was kind of how it was defined. So I think this is kind of a pushback towards that kind of culture. And I've still had people actually, despite <laughs> having said the things that you basically just said, lots of people still say it's just being lazy and abandoning your team, which goes back, I think, to our fairly old episode at this point of internalized capitalism, don't you think? Yeah, and I have sympathy for this point, having worked actual jobs. I mean, I've worked actual jobs too. Neither of us have been in offices. Right, right. I think. So we both worked actual jobs, but it's been a while for you. Yeah, I've worked for myself for quite a while now and, and in Asia, so those are a bit easier. And so my experience working an actual job when you're younger, it's like you don't really think about these things. You just, you don't care much. But when you're getting older, you have some responsibility you're coming around your 30s. You start to realize, oh, like I should probably like not make a bad impression. <laughs> you know, like when you're a teenager, you don't really care. Just take it a bit more seriously. This is not just a temporary stop. Right, because there's a career thing. There's like, you're thinking about like people's impression of you really matters. You want to make a good impression. And I found when I was working in like a, a hospital environment that they don't give you enough resources sometimes, depending on where you're working in the hospital, to do the job the way you want to do it. So you pretty much have to go above and beyond in order to meet the basic necessities or else the person that comes in on the shift after you is going to be pretty upset. I think this is a much bigger topic because we're talking about like unions and collective bargaining and just different systems. Like I think in a lot of care industries or industries where people actually give a shit, basically, like childcare might be one of them if people actually like it, healthcare for sure, working in zoos or with animals, those things tend to be fairly abusive to their workers because they know that like the workers are not heartless. Like for instance, in the UK, they had a big strike from the nurses, I think recently within the past few months. And the media was like, they were picketing in front of the hospital and somebody slipped on the ice and fell and hurt themselves. And the nurses who were picketing immediately went and helped the person who was random just walking by that fell down. And the media was running with it like, look, they want to be paid more, but they still do their jobs. They still care about people. Like as if it was a slam dunk that these nurses who want to be paid a living wage or like an amount that actually befits their station are still doing it for the fact that they're not just seeing it as just a job. It's a vocation for a lot of these people, right? And that's taken advantage of in many ways. And so that's what I'm referring to because like when you care about the work you're doing and you want to do good work by the clients and your team members because you care about them too, perhaps, it really requires you to go above and beyond. But that's because the structure of the working situation is created that way. The fix is not just expect everyone to go above and beyond. The fix is to create a staffing situation or workload that doesn't have to have that happening ideally. Yeah, I mean, obviously it should be a reasonable scope for the amount being paid, but that's exactly what they don't want to do. Like mm -hmm. Zoe B, we had on two episodes ago and right. I just was watching her thing about, we both talked briefly about the adjunct profs. It's yeah. the same sort of thing. Like they were like, how can we help with the pay situation without raising the pay? And it's like, that doesn't make any friggin' sense. They basically want every answer except for pay us more. And that's mm. the long and short of it. And that's why I think people need to be more willing to strike. And even when people have been striking, the system has been constantly showing it like the workers are the unreasonable ones because they want to be paid like some increase. Like the U.S. had, I don't think they actually struck, but the railway workers and the federal government was like, you can't strike, you're too essential. And the media the entire time was presenting it as these selfish workers want more, but they're willing to sacrifice your convenience and the economy because they want more. Instead of saying the corporations that are running these things or the companies that are in charge don't want to pay these people anything and they are the ones that are actually kind of holding it up. So it's like the whole framing, this is why media is so important. The people asking to have just a reasonable increment that matches how inflation mm -hmm. everything's going like crazy, they're the unreasonable ones. Right. Yeah. The burden of responsibility is put on the employee and you even see that like when you're actually working in these situations like there's so much social pressure to go above and beyond. It's actually 
actually harder to do the quiet quitting because now you're ostracized because everyone's like, oh, well, he's not picking up the slack here. Now I have to do his job. Oh, and then you actually get like blowback from your fellow employees when really it's the company's problem. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was referring to when I mentioned internalized capitalism because they've internalized capitalism so much that by slowing down, being like, no, we shouldn't be doing this much. We're actually asked to do far too much for the amount we're paid causes the people around you to start getting a little rankled by it being like, wow, this person's making me pick it up. No, you don't have to pick it up. That's the point. Let's all not pick it up. <laughs> yeah, let's all not pick it up and then let it drop a bit. And then what? Like they're going to fire everybody in this place. Like this is why I was like, what's the difference between this and like a work to rule or slow down? Because like slowdowns are, I think, intentionally doing what you're supposed to do, but intentionally doing it slower. And it's much harder to punish those people because you're still doing your job. You could just say you're feeling unwell or something like that. Yeah. The other is work to rule, which is similar. It's like kind of splitting hairs between all these because like work to rule is working exactly what it says to specifications. And I think there's a bunch of examples on the Wikipedia page of like, say, French railway workers who were barred from striking. They have in their rules that they can check all the safety of all bridges they pass over. And if they're in doubt, they have to consult with the train crew members. And so they stopped at every bridge they came across and checked the safety for all of them just because then that's what I mean by it's kind of splitting hairs because this is slowing down the work, but it's also like literally following the letter of the law. And so a bunch of jobs have actually started adding things in of things like ad hoc tasks or as assigned in the job description. So then, hey, look, this has been assigned to you. So like it can balloon as much as possible just to get around this. It's like a kind of cat and mouse game we're playing here. Right, right. I mean, this is the benefit of unions is working in a unionized environment. It has that work to rule kind of feel where if you're doing something outside of your job description, you really can't do that. They actually want you to stop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the benefit of a union is it kind of enforces a work to rule situation. I think like there's gotta be a medium ground there, but I understand like they're pushing back against this like oppressive overextension of positions, right? Like that everyone should be doing everything. Right. But then it gets to extremes. Like my sister, I think at one point was working in a factory and this is back in like a decade and a half ago and there was a spill. And so she grabs something to start brushing it up and everyone around her stopped her. And so they all had to stand around and wait. And so the workers are like, Hey, we get a break basically, which can, I guess in the least good representation, have a bunch of people purposefully causing accidents, quote unquote, to slow things down because they want to break. But that's an issue in itself. And that's something the union will have to address. But the thing is, and we've talked about this briefly before outside of the podcast that when we talk about unions, usually people are talking about the absolute worst form of unions and almost never acknowledge that a union is a form of organization and all organizations have various forms, both positive and negative, right? Yeah. And although I pointed out a benefit there, it personally had been a drawback for me in actually one of the positions I'm thinking of because I wanted to be able to do work outside of my role to gain experience, to get promoted, to develop skills. But it was very much tightly limited in many ways. So I had to kind of volunteer to do that extra work rather than getting paid for it. So I could see the costs and benefits of that. Oh, there's a lot of benefits and a lot of drawbacks. Like for instance, I think there is an average increase of a few thousand per person. I think maybe it was like tens of thousands, roughly, maybe not multiples, but like somewhere in the teens, I think of thousands increase in the average worker's pay who's unionized versus those who are not. But there are times where it gets like bloated and kind of frustrating because when people think about unions being bad, they think about, oh, they just want your dues and they're not doing anything for you. And I think this to me is like hearkening back to our decadence episode. It's talking about unions that have dominated an industry and no longer care whether they expand and don't even really care if they shrink to a good degree because to operate in that industry means you must deal with them. So teachers unions or hospital unions or at least in Canada are seen as examples of this because they are so entrenched that you basically can't operate in those industries without joining these unions. So the unions have no real incentive to be competitive or to attract more people. So one book I read about this that was on the history of unions, it was talking about its only solution that they offered up, which I thought was actually fairly superficial, was that unions should be constantly trying to expand and their worker base. So they should always be trying to show workers I guess when thinking about this for a while since then, that they think that unions should constantly be expanding to show 
workers in new environments what we can do for you so that they'll join. Because if it's an entrenched thing that isn't looking to expand its space, it's already got full control of that, then it, it's basically just, I guess, kind of slovenly rich people basically at that point, kind of like they get what they get. They're kind of decadent. Yeah, I guess that's the word. Generational wealth kind of thing where it's like, eh, like it'll keep coming. We don't have to do anything for it. But if you have to keep showing other areas, hey, join us and we can help you, then you have to keep doing positive things. Although I don't know if this is a solution either because like that can easily go astray of them like making it so restrictive that the company can't operate anymore, which is the other side that people argue a lot. It's complicated. It goes back and forth a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've been really interested in police unions recently. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah. So in the work to rule thing, I noticed that there is a C also work to rule Wikipedia page of this blue flu. So blue flu is apparently when cops will all decide to call in sick and not go in. Personally, I think that police unions should not be able to be a thing. They should not be able to unionize. They should get a fair wage and they should not continue to get more protections from the law because really it's kind of a weird kind of catch-22 where unions in the past and probably still today likely increasingly today because there's an increasing effort in the u.s and probably canada to unionize that cops are brought in to kind of break up unions in fact they're like former cop groups i think like the pinkertons were a historical group that still exist that say they can be hired to union busts essentially and union busting is illegal technically but corporations don't really get slapped very hard for it so they just continue doing it anyway so the reason i'm talking about this is because cops are used constantly to break up unions in any union action, but then they themselves want to unionize and get all the benefits from it, which who's going to break up that union then? Is it going to be the fellow cops? No, we know that they're really bad at policing themselves, which is kind of how they want it to be to police themselves like trust us well, we can police ourselves but then the question is why do we need you if policing yourselves is always a good call why can't the public just do that it's one argument right like i mean the major benefit of unions is protecting the more vulnerable individuals marginalized individuals working class individuals why would kind of a, an institution that is kind of a position of power wrapped up with the government like what is the need there i guess are you asking me yeah because gonna... i mean i know that that's questions a rhetorical question in that it already kind of answers itself there isn't they're already <laughs> right. protected and in fact Okay, the stuff I sent you yesterday, it was preliminary research. It's not actually been published yet, but it's just an analysis of how over, I think, the past decade, how unions have affected policing. And essentially, the findings were that unions for police, they don't help in any of the ways that we want. Like, they don't help with any kind of crime whatsoever, which is kind of the argument that police always say that, like, police need unions because then if they are able to bargain for themselves and what they need, then they'll be able to get things to prevent crime and all that. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So this is by a guy named Rob Gilzo. It's a long name, T-I-L-L-E. Z-E-A-U. On Twitter, who is talking about this, he's tweeting that, and apparently he says, with an additional 0 0.026 to 0 0.029, civilians killed in a county each year of whom the overwhelming majority are non-white. So basically, it increases the number of deaths per county, and most of which are not white people. So I'm against police unions also because, like, what we're talking about, it does, in this case, it still does protect the minorities, which are the shitheads that are doing illegal shit and abusing their power. It's like the whole blue wall kind of thing, right? Like, they are able to be protected when they do shitty things. I mean, this is obviously very related to broken window theory, which is apparently soundly debunked. And yet it's still a very large influence in at least North American policing, where it essentially says, if you find any small infraction, you can pursue it because leaving any infraction unpursued means that people are more likely to commit more crimes in that area, showing that like police just don't care. So like if you spit gum out, then that might lead you to be more likely to pickpocket somebody, I guess, because you were able to go away with that one infraction. So other ones are more likely. But what this actually translates to is police being able to target whoever they choose because we're all breaking minor laws all the time so they can then go after you without any real repercussions likely especially if they overshoot it yeah that zero tolerance 
policing can for sure be problematic. We saw that in New York with Giuliani and all. There's many examples of how it can lead to racial bias, etc. We'll have to do a whole episode on broken window yeah, theory. Yeah, I was just thinking we're way off of quiet quitting. We're talking about a completely different workplace. <laughs> yeah, back to police contracts, though, because you said to me protections in police contracts led to dramatic increase in violence against citizens. In Florida, that led to a 40% increase in violence among deputies. Yeah, I phrased that one weirdly. All this information is basically from Behind the Bastards episode, which there's episodes. It's like a four-part series on Behind the Cops. I recommend that. We will link it, but they go even deeper into this particular area. But yeah, it basically shows that like cops do everything that we don't want them to do if they're unionized. So it seems like something that shouldn't be allowed. I don't know. And in the States, apparently there's a correlation between training in the States as it currently stands and violence from police because the more training the cops get in the U.S. right now, it seems like they're more actually scared because the training itself teaches them that every traffic stop could be your last stop. And so they're much more trigger happy because they're constantly made to fear for their lives for even minor things. So when people say they need more training, it's partially yes. But the other thing is different training. They need better training. But unless you have something to say to that, we should probably jump back no, to actual no. quiet quitting. So we went from unions to police unions to violence. Okay. But to bring it back to quiet quitting. It is something that it's in the realm of workers' rights, taking back power. What's your stance on it personally, this quiet quitting? I'm for it. You shouldn't have to spend your own private time if you're not being paid for being on call. You shouldn't have your job take over your life. A job should just be a job a lot of the time. It's great if it's a calling. I mean, that's something that we were known for as a generation, that we were looking for stuff that was actually fulfilling. But at this point, personally, I am looking for something that will pay like a salary, but have milestones. So it's like, if you can get your work done in two hours, they're not going to give you four times the amount of work just so you can fill an eight-hour day. I think it shouldn't be punished to get your work done if you do it to a satisfactory level. And I think that doing what your job entails is not a crime. You shouldn't be penalized for not doing extra. That's ridiculous. Like that's just inflation of what we expect from people. And we have to maybe add that this is not just people that I'm just doing the bare minimum. Someone gets to a place of quiet quitting because they've been taken advantage of by their employer for long enough and they're burnt out, they're exhausted. Like this is not somebody just like on the first day of the job, like let's just see the smallest amount I can possibly do. And you know, this is someone perhaps who had been trying to go above and beyond, doing extra training, staying late, answering emails at midnight, really just trying to make the best impression and hadn't been promoted, hadn't gotten appropriate pay raises or any recognition, or if it's recognition, it's just kind of superficial recognition. Like a pizza party, or you made the company millions of dollars this year, you get a $20 bonus. Like, hooray. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot of this <laughs> bullshit. Because, well, I mean, I've dipped a bit more into Marx's theory in the past little while. There's a few things that you said have brushed directly against Marx's thought. And this one also, this one in particular, it's about how basically. For a company to continue to be ever more profitable in a capitalist system, it has to find ways to cut costs or increase profits somehow. And there's only so much price that the market will sustain. And there's only so many ways you can make your processes more efficient. So the one place that you can always take from is the amount you pay for your workers. So like wages are the one thing that they just will constantly try to suppress because everything else is incrementally growing at best. So if you can cut people's pay or just at least not allow it to move at all, then you can constantly keep chasing that ever impossible goal of exponential forever growth. Yeah. And another way you can do that is you squeeze more from the people you have by making them just do different roles outside of their job description. And so in reaction to, I guess, quiet quitting, some corporate HR person came up with a really stupid concept. I mean, all this is stupid. This is basically an episode of stupid concepts. There's a few more stupid concepts related to this, but the one that I'm talking about is quiet hiring. Have you heard that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we've talked briefly 
briefly about it. I had to rewatch the video today because I'm like, what exactly is it again? So here I have it in front of me. I queued it up while you were talking. So this is the definition. I don't want to say the woman's name because it seems like she's the only source and she's the one that's promoting this. Some HR shill, essentially, who is going around and making a name for herself by constantly promoting this stupid concept. She's the only source that it comes up. So I'm not going to say her name, but she defines it as quiet hiring is when an organization acquires new skills without actually hiring new full-time employees, which is just a way of saying the exact opposite of quiet quitting, it sounds like. You're forcing people to do more than their job entails without hiring anybody else. Although she specifies full-time, I guess. And the way she phrases it in some of the examples of how you would propose this to someone, you would be like, oh, we noticed you were doing a great job in your current position. And although we can't hire you for this promotion position, we would still like to give you the opportunity to try out some of these roles and see if it's a good fit, getting some experience, and maybe in the future, if resources allow, we can hire you onto that other position. So not really being able to promise it. And so pretty much getting free work and they never really have to deliver on hiring or promoting that person. It's just bad faith. This is what I don't understand. Like Jim Collins is like the master of this. He's got a, a series of books on like research on like how business should be. His philosophy in Good to Great or Build to Last is very much mirroring my own in business where like this is just bad practice generally that like you're breaking trust constantly with your employees, especially if you dangle a carrot that never comes. So if you say, hey, you do this extra work, we'll pay you more and then you don't pay them more or worse yet, you give them less than inflation raises if they're good because some jobs I interviewed for said that they give if you were good a two to three percent raise per year, which is not even inflation. I think it was two percent. I don't think it was even up to three. Yeah, two to three is pretty normal. I know, but that's exactly why the norm right now is that you should be constantly switching jobs. So people complain about how nobody really wants to work and nobody has any real loyalty to companies. But like, who is not rewarding loyalty? It's the companies themselves. They'll hire people for higher pay because the market forces it than the people who have been there for five years. So of course they're going to leave. Yeah, and so it's always smart to have a roster of potential other jobs. Always smart to be looking for different jobs, which brings which us, us to another stupid <laughs> yeah, very good. Career cushioning <laughs> is the other one, which it's related to what I was talking about earlier of the strikes for the railways, because it's again, framing everybody that's pushing for their own rights as being bad. It's like battered wives. We could say that battered wives just blaming them as enablers being like, oh, look, like you don't want to be in the situation or be hit like, oh, but it's your fault. It's the same, same sort of thing. We're, we're victim blaming. Victim blaming. Yeah, for sure. So the word career cushioning, it's simply a name for what people should probably already be doing in the first place, which is always looking out for different opportunities and different employers, networking. This is nothing new. This is completely ordinary. Yeah, yeah. But this word that came out and the news stations all pick it up and they're like, this new job trend that you should know about. Are your employees doing it? <laughs> First off, I mean, I don't really know the Canadian thing. This is something that's used by the left and the right. I've seen to kind of hilarious effects sometimes. But the media is basically owned, bought and sold by like a handful of different people. And they're the ones that are pushing these agendas. Like there's this compilation. I can't remember. I think it was Sinclair Media. But it shows dozens and dozens, countless, saying the exact same line overlapping each other. Have you seen this? Like local Local news yeah. stations talking about the how they need, yeah, they need the freedom of information. It's like every single one of them is a clone because they don't actually have that. Yeah, it's this fake thing. And I think part of it is that journalism right now is completely broken because we aren't funding it and its incentives are all skewed. That's a big and one, the yeah. other part is that it's been bought and constantly used to change our opinions in ways that benefit the class that owns them. So for instance, I think I saw another headline recently saying that maybe elites should get a bigger say in who leads the country. And it was by none other than, I think it was the Washington Post that Bezos owns, but it was his newspaper who, since he's bought it, has had some of the most blatant pro-rich, anti-working class propaganda I've seen. And remember that headline you sent me yesterday about employers have had enough, no more working from home. <laughs> yeah, it was the Washington Post just to confirm that. But yeah, I was saying, like working from home? Well, these companies have had enough. And we were both kind of confused about 
with the headline because we're like, which side is this on? Because it sounds kind of like, haha, like you can't have us anymore. But I realized it might actually be on the side of workers because it's like, watch out. These places don't want you to have that. But on one level, it's like these companies have had enough, like framing working from home as this like negative vice. You're lazy. They've had enough. They're not tolerating it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how they're phrasing it, which I think it's because the whole system has been built around cities being like the central units where they can force everybody to work. They own a lot of property or they have a lot of money tied up in leases and they don't want to get out of that. But like, honestly, again, it's short term thinking. And this is kind of what like the year over year, quarter over quarter profits have to be, because why would you not see that if you get out of your lease, break your lease or just pay it out until the end and then let from then on people work from home, you're going to save money unless it's like one of those things where behavioral economics is kind of pointed out that economics is not always rational. It's often skewed by stupid psychological things. And one of those was managers wanting a lot of people under them, their underlings within sight, butts in seats, just having them because then they feel more important. So this kind of eliminates that because they're not physically there. You can't lord your power over them. They're remote. So I guess if you're that kind of manager, it's an issue. So yeah, if you're sitting at home, like doing nothing, you may realize, oh, I'm dispensable. They don't need me. <laughs> I guess if you're a middle manager type of thing, but maybe, you know, maybe some are really busy, but yeah, framing work from home as a negative, kind of in line with that victim blaming idea, not to call all workers victims, but it's kind of putting the burden of responsibility unnecessarily on the worker without being critical of the organization and the kind of the capitalist kind of perpetual growth mentality in general, really you're not looking at root causes. And so you notice the concept of quiet quitting, career cushioning. They have this kind of soft, passive, like <laughs> framing millennials as like, they don't know a day of hard work, you know. This all leads me to think recurrently about this weekly of if you make peaceful protests impossible, you make violent protests inevitable. Like this is kind of how I see the cycles of organizations or political parties or countries or whatever. This is again, the whole thing of like truth being fractal it applies to so many levels that once they get to a certain level of success, the people on the top think, hey, we're just going to consolidate this as much as possible. Because if we do that, then they just can't fight back. But then they end up making things so bad that they end up making it inevitable that there's going to be a violent protest against this or some sort of massive action that's going to end up with their head on a block, possibly, probably metaphorical, hopefully. But I mean, that's what they're doing, right? Like they're just basically they're demonizing open action. Like if you protest, then you're just like, uh, oh, you know, somebody was just a uh, woke SJ who just like doesn't know how to work or doesn't want to work like these lazy millennials but then if you quiet quit you still keep working and doing your thing but then like decide to like withdraw a bit oh look they're quiet quitting they're doing the bad thing like no matter what you do what do you want us to do just shut up and do nothing is essentially what the message is and since the system is broken that's not going to happen you're just going to push people to take more and more aggressive actions and if you do just do more and not say anything there's a real personal boundary issue where you're going to burn yourself out yeah I mean of course and that's another thing that they talked about with quiet quitting was that it's not just that they don't want to work. It's that they're, they're trying to find that balance. These are not people that are like well and, and like balanced in their lives. And they're just like, how can I do less in my job? These are people who are stressed out. Yeah, they're not making six figures, like having a luxurious life. And then, you know, you know, I, I'm like, you know who that sounds like we're describing is probably the C-suite, the top people who are just kind of sitting in meetings all day and aren't working themselves to the bone, but getting disproportionate wages. So like if we want to talk about who's being lazy and quiet quitting. Then we should look at the people who are just kind of sitting up top, not doing that much. Sure, some of them do, but many don't. I don't know. I haven't worked in there in the C-suite. Yeah, I'm just talking about my ass. It's informed by books and stuff that I've read, but it's nothing I can point to at the moment. I do talk to people now and then that are from the C-suite, and it sounds pretty stressful. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I'd be curious though. Yeah. Just, just I would like to see like industry by industry and industry wide. But the thing is, we're not going to find good information on that. That's the problem is that those people are often protected by the media because it's their own class basically. And also the companies themselves don't want to make it seem like the C-suite's not doing anything because then that will make them lose value and like it'll just reflect badly. So even if the CEO is doing absolutely nothing but taking vacations and going to play golf, he would probably say those are all business meetings on the golf course and like may or may not be true, but they're going to pretty it up in any way they possibly can. One thing we haven't talked about is quiet firing. Have you heard about this one? No, let's talk about that one. All right. So quiet firing, I've had actually done to me once, which from like the most embarrassing place to have it done. Oh, I did hear about this concept. Yes. <laughs> Basically making it so that they're adding more and more restrictions onto you so that eventually you quit. It's like being in a bad relationship where you don't want to break up with them. And so you just keep treating them worse and worse. So they, basically they try to make you quit the job rather than firing you. So this happened to you. Tell me about it. Uh, it was nothing. Like I said, it's not it's not really a worthwhile job to stay at. But I had just graduated. The recession was in full swing still. And I was just finding any job possible. So I worked at this PETA place that made PETAs for drunk students, basically. And <laughs> I don't know why exactly. But they basically gave me only Saturday nights from midnight until 4 a.m. That was my weekly shift. That was the one shift. They had gotten ones before. But then that one, for some reason, I consistently got. Walking home at 4 a.m. in the winter. I just remember being afraid I was going to get jumped walking through a park because it was the fastest way home. <laughs> 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 but they just kept like giving me these like terrible, terrible shifts. And those other stupid things were like, I wasn't a union, but I got ridden up because my union steward was a dickhead. I went away for vacation one time when I was in high school and I was working at a the Real Canadian Superstore, which is a really hokey name if you're American, probably. Oh, right. We're just familiar with it. Yeah. The, the Real Canadian Superstore is just, it's like a grocery store that became, wanted to be Walmart. And I was working in the produce department. They, we had these special shirts on as like a promotion thing every weekend. And so I went away from one weekend to the next. And then finally, came back and the first shift I had was on a weekend I wore the stupid shirt and I got ridden up because I wasn't supposed to wear the shirt anymore and they posted it up all these places apparently that I should have seen while I was in a different country so <laughs> I got ridden up for that <laughs> but like that's not quite the same story it's just I'm kind of on a tangent. Yeah, quiet firing so just adding additional pressures like writing up for small infractions making your schedule really frustrating just various things like you said. Like if you want to fire somebody you can fire them for a build up of really stupid things. Build up resentment and then wait for them to slip because you don't want to give them I mean if you can find just cause you don't have to give them I think you don't have to give them severance or at least much less. I think with cause firing you don't get severance. I think. I'm not 100%. Maybe that's industry by industry. But they will do that or they'll try to make you quit so they don't have to give you severance either. It's just either way they, they try to avoid giving you anything at all. I saw a news chat. One of those you know local channel 5 news or some kind of like local news syndicate or whatever where they were talking about quiet quitting versus quiet firing. And then they were just like, why is everyone so quiet? And it almost made it feel like this generation is just too passive. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And how do you think they're going to report if we got loud, aka violent or like protesting or anything like that? Like I was saying, they're panning us into a corner where no matter what we do, we're going to be penalized. If we didn't do anything, we'd be called passive, which this is, I guess, kind of what they're doing. If we're doing it quietly, then it's not aggressive enough. And if we do it aggressively, then we're terrorists. Like Antifa has been just literally, it protests fascists. And we can't even say that that's a good movement because, oh no, the Antifa, like they're just as bad as fascists. It's like, yeah, antivirals are just as bad as viruses. It's just like, what are you thinking? The only people that have a problem with these things are the thing that's being treated itself usually, but whatever. There's another point that I had here that I'd said to you a while ago, which was we cut most of the workforce and now productivity is down. 
it must be quiet quitting. So oh, this is another thing of like, they've done a bunch of stupid things and they can't take responsibility for it. So they're kind of blaming everybody else. The same thing as like, nobody wants to work anymore. Well, right now, at least in a lot of places in North America, at least where we are, unemployment is really low. It's so low that like, it's actually not good because there's no people changing jobs or moving to other positions. And there's still a lot of empty jobs. So the jobs that aren't being filled, of course, like because they're bad, nobody wants to work them. They're not paying very well. They don't treat their employees very well. There's no growth opportunities. It doesn't look good in the resume. If that describes the job you're offering and you're saying nobody wants to work, I don't think it's the people that you're trying to hire that are the problem. It's funny. I was driving home from the gym just last night and I heard on the CBC that they were talking to a long-term care home HR person who posted a job for a nurse practitioner back in like November or something. And it was for a 100K salary to be the nurse practitioner in this long-term care facility in a small town in Ontario. And guess how many people applied? I'm not sure. It's either going to be a lot or not many at all. I can't say. <laughs> is that surprising at all? Zero applications. As you're saying this, I'm just sitting here wondering where the story is going to go. Because like, where did they end up taking it? What is your take on it? It was the strangest story because I was like, is this whole segment dedicated to like <laughs> them trying to find somebody to work there? But was the point that like nobody wants to work or that there's a shortage of nurses because we just came out of a pandemic where people weren't paid very well and a lot of them burnt out? I how they were going to frame it. And because it was a fairly, in my opinion, more reputable source, although it does have a left-wing kind of slant. It's like center, center left. Like it's like two ticks away from center. So they do actual news, I would say. It doesn't matter where it is on the spectrum because factual versus non-factual. If you're on the left or on the right, it doesn't mean you are not factual. You can be having a biased perspective while also being factual. So you can take a right-wing factual perspective, a left-wing factual perspective. Yeah, but then that pulls in the question of like lies by omission. Like, yes, you and I can talk about the same story, but I can only talk about the person hitting you and you can only talk about the person being hit. Right, yeah. So this is a little bit of a tangent away from the point, as we normally do, that... I was wondering where they were going to take it, and I didn't think it was going to be like this kind of news station, Fox-oriented, like, you know, Tucker Carlson angle, and it didn't go there. It wasn't like, these lazy people, nobody wants to work and apply to the 100K job. What's wrong with people, like kids these days, you know, or something? Okay, so you're leaving us in suspense. What, where did they go? Talking about nursing shortage in general, the problem with working in long-term care, particularly in Ontario, where it's been on fire for the last few years, if not longer, much longer. <laughs> I mean, it was in bad shape before the pandemic and it's gotten even worse. Yeah. And that was mainly it, the shortage of nursing. And, and, and we can see how there's a shortage of nursing staff. I mean, the pandemic burned a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of them don't want to get back into the system. A lot of them, I think, don't want to deal with the union. I know a couple that became just like rotating workers that'll go like they'll be wandering nurses, basically nomadic nurses that show up places, work for a bit, have a huge leverage in how much they ask for and pay. And then they don't have any real commitment. So yeah, of course, there's actually a Instagram thing I had of, of a doctor saying that where it's like the hospital opens the door is like, hey, we really need you. And the nurse is like, uh, yeah, sorry, like I'm not really feeling it. Can I get a raise? Because like I'm, I've been working really hard here. You've been promising me that this will pay off and it hasn't. They're like, oh, no, no, we can't do that. And so then it shows the guy take off his scrubs and put on just like another shirt. And they're like, what are you doing? He's like, now I'm a freelance nurse. Now I'm going to be paid way more than I was asking for because you didn't offer that. And now like I also have more freedom too. So like basically they didn't treat them well and then they still need them. So those nurses ended up having much more collective bargaining power, I guess, or individual bargaining power, rather, because the system just kind of screwed itself. And that's like the whole decadence thing. That's why I think I had a freak out for that episode is because like it's it's just everywhere that leadership is just generally not trustworthy and generally abusing people and generally causing their own problems then blaming everyone else for it. Yeah. And I think it's a really good place to kind of wind down the episode on the whole thing of nursing because like that's been a really burnt out kind of profession where people have been struggling. People left the profession because they just they couldn't do it anymore. And leaving those who are still in it having to kind of pick up 
the slack and there's so much more pressure. So how do you quiet quit? And that's the thing. We started the episode more in the, in the hospital and we're ending it there too. This is what I was talking about though. Like these people, I think a lot of them go into these industries because they actually want to, because they want to help people. And now the industry makes it so it's punished. Like teachers are as well yeah, in the US at least. US they are sure. doing these things because they feel calling to it. It's a vocation and that's being abused. They're not being rewarded for it. They're not even able to barely live. If the adjunct profs, like you were talking about that, we're going to link that video as well. But basically they're paid like almost nothing. Most professors, as we think of them, don't exist. It's like guys living out of their trucks teaching university level classes. And I read about these stories like a decade ago and it's just, it's not changed. So like something's going to break. The people in charge of like even the country or individual states or corporations are basically pushing it so that people kind of have to do a lot. And on the one hand, I think this is bad. Like things are pretty bad. On the other hand, bad can push people to action to actually take steps to fix things. And a thriving society, we can't just turn to the government and say, hey, fix this. We need to actually do stuff ourselves. So that's why I would end it. Collective action. Yeah. So we're not talking about like individual nurses quiet quitting and they're all stressing each other out now. Like, oh, I'm coming in my shift and you didn't do this. That's not necessarily the answer. It's more that the collective action. I know in healthcare, it's a strongly unionized environment, at least what I'm aware of in Canada. But, you know, this this quiet quitting, there's too much social pressure and urgency to really effectively do it in those environments. It can work really well in like remote work or you're not doing shift work where someone has to come in and pick up any slack, more project based work, you know, there are environments where it can make more sense, where you just kind of stop answering your emails after a certain time. You know, these types of jobs where you're maybe on a salary and you could just check your stuff all day and night and whatever. There are ways you can institute effective personal boundaries with your work in ways that don't necessarily put a burden on other people. I want to take it a little bit further because I mean, a lot of jobs, I think, which you're prescribing can end up with a very irate boss screaming at you daily. So I'm going to say, let's take it a step further and say, constantly be applying to new jobs. Don't have any loyalty to your company. Yeah, career cushion. <laughs> basically that's stupid I don't want to use it no remember take it back just keep looking for better opportunities until you find something better and then leave if you get an offer from a job you do not have to take it unless it's better and if it's better then why wouldn't you leave like screw it there's no loyalty here for you so we might as well take advantage of it unless I guess you are one of those managers then try to actually be communicative and go to bat for your people don't just take the side of the top love it anyway that's it for this week and have a happy new year happy holidays all the stuff that we missed since we weren't here during that time we missed all of that so we'll talk more soon And in the meantime, stay safe, take care, hope to see you again. Yeah. Bye. It's such trash.